Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are going to be discussing Thomas Hardy's novel, Test the Durbervilles. We're going to talk about phase the second, phase two, also known as chapters 12 through 15. Uh, so just a warning, this, this week, we don't talk about as many chapters. Next week, however, many more chapters. So be prepared to have to, you know, if you're reading along with us as we go, be prepared to have to spend a little more time reading. I mean, it'll, it'll be time, it'll be well worth it. But, you know, who doesn't want to spend more time in a book this good? But just be aware that next week it will be more chapters. If you have adapted yourself to the number of chapters that we've been doing through these first three episodes, it will be time to unadapt yourself and adapt to a new sequence. So, Karen, how's it going? How are you? Before we dive into this, this kind of extraordinary section, what's going on? Well, it's been a crazy week. What else is new in my life? But this, <laughs> this, this is a high, this is my, my refuge and my highlight. I, I come <laughs> to the pages of great literature and none greater than those of Tess. I think a lot of people who are listening probably feel the same way. And that's one of the reasons why they listen is because they turn to the pages of great literature when things are a little crazy. And of course, there's a lot going on in the world right now. So we'll get to spend an hour together as a refuge and uh, we'll just kind of soak it in. Heidi, how are you? I'm doing great. I am excited to be here, although it is close to the end of the school year. So for those of us who are educators, it's it, there is a lot going on in the great big world and there's a lot going on in our tiny little world of teaching and ending the school year and events and yeah and all of it so i can i can see i love you know it's just so funny because i was just about to say i can see the light at the end of the tunnel but i mean it's not like the school year's hell on earth like it's wonderful i love teaching but man this time of year i am just ready for that (laughs) may 21st (laughs) (laughs) you're ready for the break karen is your semester already over the college schedule is a little bit different sometimes it's 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 basically over i'm i just haven't submitted my grades yet but yeah it's getting there close yes yeah yeah you've got all i mean doing grades at the end of the semester is is a lot of work so godspeed (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Good luck. Okay. We are here to discuss, as I said, uh, phase the second. It's chapters 12 through 15, which means that it's the the section where Tess gets home. Uh, It begins, this phase is called Maiden No More. And uh, we get the the chapter 12, as I believe the one in the field, right? Uh, Where she's home and we're introduced to to this baby. And then we get the baptism scene, the minister scene, and then she decides to go off to work as a dairy maid, I believe is what book refers to the position as. And so that's kind of the broad summary of what's happening in these, these chapters. This baptism scene, Karen, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of one of the big scenes in literature from the era, right? To say nothing of, from Thomas Hardy's canon, to say nothing of this book. But it's, it seems like it's one of the more memorable um, highly thought of scenes. Is that, is that right? Or am I just making no, that up? I, I mean, I hear from people over and over, whether I'm teaching the class, t- 
with this book or just from other people reading it that that this scene is just so memorable and so uh, so so devastating really i remember someone on twitter a friend who was reading it for the first time and she got to this part and she's tweeting at me just saying she's not sure she could even handle um mm. the the devastation of of this section of the book and of course i just said spoiler alert it gets worse but <laughs> sorry yeah <laughs> it's it's um i was thinking about how this scene is so difficult and yet also so sublime at the same time as a piece of literature. Heidi, for you, first of all, do you agree with that? Second, does one of those two ideas overwhelm the other one when you're reading this? You texted me an emoji. I think it was like test baptizing her baby with, with a, you know, and an emoji that's a like crying, a crying emoji. Yeah. yeah. Like a laugh face no i'm just yeah, kidding yeah no, it's no definitely a cry face. yeah like with a cry face and so do you do you so the question is do you agree with my assertion that this is both tragic both sad and sublime at the same time does the however if you do this the tragedy the sadness overwhelm the is sublimity a word the sublimeness yes of of the of the passage uh, I I definitely noticed the emotion more than the sublimity, but I did read it a couple of times. I I can't imagine anybody who's paying attention who who could possibly be unaffected emotionally by this scene, and I, I think we ought not to be. I think we should be affected by it. Uh, it is beautifully written. Um, but I was definitely emotion first in my response. And this is the second time I read it. So I knew it was coming, but this is the first time I've read it as a mother and as an adult. Um, and, and so definitely, um, yeah, I, I did read it a couple of times over the course of the week, just to, I guess, kind of like get it together and be able to talk about it as, as a piece of literature, (laughs) Because it is one of those things you enter into so fully, the loss of this baby along with her innocence and her reputation. Like there's so many things dying in this section. Mm. And and so it's it is the death of the baby, but also just all of the crushing weight of uh of what happened and what it has cost her that mm. that we I think we feel in this section. I was going to say, let's, let's dig in and like try to identify what makes this scene so great. I mean, Karen, you have some questions in your, you know, in in the book, in the edition that you edited, some interesting reflection questions. And I want to get to those, like they're a little more narrow than what I'm asking here, but as one of the great scenes of literature in the last 150 years, if not ever, what makes this such an incredibly both moving and then also well-crafted scene. I mean, maybe those are the same thing, maybe a well-crafted, you know, maybe it's what, what makes it well-crafted is what makes it moving and vice versa. So when you're, when you're thinking about this scene, where do you, what, what are you drawn to first? Having read this over and over again, what is the first thing that jumps out at you as the expert on this scene? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I, I think the, the image of, this young girl whom we we already know is is pretty much helpless and passive and in a in a, a situation in circumstances where nothing can be done she has 
a baby and, you know, babies are important. Babies are valuable. And she is, does this perhaps the strongest thing she ever does, which is to, um, Mm. to baptize her child who is dying, who she's mourning and all around her, are her little brothers and sisters watching in awe and reverence. Mm -hmm. And she is not only a child, she is a woman, a young woman, a female. She is not ordained. She is doing this high clerical, holy act because she has no one to do it for her. Mm. And she believes in it. And that makes it all the more heartbreaking because she mm. believes so much that she needs to do this for her child. And it's heartbreaking for us because no one else will do it mm. or can do it in this moment anyway, mm. because time is running out. There's so many different ways you could look at this scene because you could, you have this question, number seven, this is on page 191, the scene in which Tess baptizes her baby, you say, is powerful and dramatic. One of the novel's most affecting scenes. I think well-established that part, right? (laughs) You say, who or what is Hardy criticizing or or questioning Mm -hmm. or criticizing here? So we could dig into that. Mm -hmm. We could dig in, and I want to, in a minute, what are, who or what is Hardy questioning or criticizing here? You could also look at it, like you could have a, people from different ecclesiastical traditions could have a lot of pretty widely wide and varying discussions about what's happening here. You then have a question about how she asks the parson if her baptism of her baby is the same as if the parson had done it. And the narrator observes, you point out, quote, the man and the ecclesiastic fought within him and the victory fell to the man, end quote. Mm-hmm. What does Hardy mean in saying this? So we could talk about that as well. And then um, we could also just kind of examine the way Hardy grabs at our heartstrings through the pathos of his writing and things like that. And I kind of want to start there because we can look at these bigger picture ecclesiastical issues, these, these cultural issues that Hardy is, is examining. And I think we should, but I'm really curious about how does he pull this off as a storyteller? Mm. So as this very gifted novelist who is taking us on a wild ride narrator uh, wise throughout this book, he he's able to, to dig into this character and then create this very particular scene, which actually kind of rushes by, like this whole part mm-hmm. of her life rushes by very quickly. I was, mm-hmm. I was thinking about that. Like she's home, she's had the baby off scene. And then we're not really sure how much, I, I was getting confused about how much time is passing, how much, how long are we actually, is it one day that this baby gets sick and then dies? You know, it's, the time frame is a little blurry to me and it might be just, I missed it. But yet, this particular moment, this particular night is so incredibly moving despite all the work that this scene is doing, all the time that's passing, all, all, all the narrative that it has to cover. This one particular scene is like absolutely breathtaking. So how does he, I'm rambling right now to give you a chance to think, how does he pull that off from a narrative storytelling perspective? Karen, as a teacher, I'll ask you first, is there anything that you like to look at in this scene from that perspective? Heidi, jump in whenever too. Yeah, I mean, well, we 
I just we just need to look at the whole scene. I don't I'll maybe not read the whole thing, but it's so essential. And in my edition, it starts at one seventy nine. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's every detail. It's every concrete detail. It's every um, symbolic and philosophical and religious um, resonance Hardy builds in. I mean, if we start where in the middle of page one one seventy nine, the baby is sick and she's she's very upset. She's praying to God, and then she says, "Ah." perhaps baby can be saved. Perhaps it will be just the same. Um, and that's a refrain that we hear later on. She's, she's thinking, you know, how can she get this baby, um, baptized before it dies? And, um, and then, I mean, can, I'm just going to have to read it. So, I mean, it. yeah. it's so, so she spoke so brightly that it seemed as though her face might have shone in the gloom surrounding her. She lit a candle and went to a second and a third bed under the wall where she awoke her young sisters and brothers, all of whom occupied the same room. I mean, you can picture mm. this already. Pulling out the washing stand so that she could get behind it, she poured some water from a jug and made them kneel around, putting their hands together with fingers exactly vertical. He's describing her helping her younger brothers and sisters form their hands in prayer. While the children, scarcely awake, awestricken at her manner, uh, their eyes growing larger and larger, remained in this position, she took the baby from her bed, a child's child. So immature is scarce to seem a sufficient personality to endow its producer with the maternal title. Tess then stood erect with the infant on her arm beside the basin. The next sister held the prayer book open before her as the clerk at church held it before the parson. And thus the girl set about baptizing her child. I mean, it's I'll skip to the next it's next paragraph that you should read the next one is again it's so vivid and bright and um easy to imagine lots of mm-hmm. he uses words like immaculate beauty with a touch of dignity and but i just love this part where the dialogue begins the most impressed of them said be you really going to christen him tess the girl mother replied in a grave affirmative what's his name going to be she had not thought of that but a name suggested by a phrase in the book of Genesis came into her head as she proceeded with the baptismal service. And now she pronounced it sorrow. I baptize thee in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy ghost. She sprinkled the water and there was silence. Say amen, children. The tiny voices piped in obedient response. Amen. Mm. I mean, here is a, a girl, a child who has taken control of this horrible situation and she is doing for her child the most important thing she believes the child needs and and the child doesn't even have a name before she Mm. does this which of course i mean that 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 seems unthinkable in our time but was normal at that time and so she's just operating by instinct but she's 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 gathered her brothers and sisters uh, as witnesses to this christening. She's helped them to pray. And I love the line when the when her sibling says, be you really going to christen him, Tess? That tells us just how unbelievable this is. Like they can't mm. even conceive of it. They're, they are in awe of their sister. Okay, mm. that, that's just the beginning of how great this scene is. Yeah, I think along with everything you're saying 
when we think of this scene, it isn't just the death of this child that is so haunting. It's Tessa's act of baptizing the child that that bears the weight of the of the meaning here. It's that. That's what we're always going to remember. Everyone who reads this will remember that. Will remember that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's because it is. I'm going to. You know, everyone, everyone can take a shot now um, <laughs> for the close reads drinking game. Um, that's just a joke. Um, but we do have a close reads bingo that has a word I'm about to use or a phrase I'm about to use. It is an objective correlative. This this act that's happening here, it's it, it bears the full weight of the intersection of Tess's strength and her vulnerability that she is a survivor of this great trauma and she's the only one paying any consequences at all she is the one bearing the weight that other people and other institutions ought to be helping her carry her family ought to be carrying this with her her mother the father of this child uh the church (laughs) and yet it's all falling on tests uh, to do this thing that she ought not to have to do. And, and at the same time, she's losing the new life uh, that could come from what she's gone through. I think of David, right, in the um, in Bathsheba losing their son after David and Bathsheba's adultery um, and, and David mourning for his son and um, and the joy that could come from a new life that comes from those, the consequences of that action. And that's lost to Tess. She doesn't get to raise this baby. And um, so the good, so to speak, that could have come from it is now lost to her. Uh, and so along with the baby's death, there's also kind of this weight of, uh, of death of so many other things, right? Her innocence, her, her reputation, her future, family expectations, even her faith. And, um, and so there's that vulnerability, but there's also the strength of this woman who is, who is trying to meet that, right. Trying to stand in the gap. It's like, if no one else will do it, I will. And, and that creates such pathos and such a response in me. And I think in all, all readers, we grieve along with her, but we also, we also see her rising to something Um, There is this um, movement uh, that could, we want it to lead to greater strength, right? And we see her capacity for greater strength and we wonder what will come of it. You know, that's, there's a paragraph here that kind of speaks to that. It's the one right where Karen left off because it says that her figure is on 180. Her figure looked singularly tall and imposing as she stood in her long white nightgown, a thick cable of twisted dark hair hanging straight down her back to her waist. The kindly dimness of the weak candle abstracted from her form and features the little blemishes which sunlight might have revealed, the stubble scratches upon her wrists and the weariness of her eyes, her high enthusiasm having a transfiguring effect upon the face which had been her undoing, showing it as a thing of immaculate beauty with a touch of dignity which was almost regal. So, I mean, her figure looks tall and imposing. There's this idea of her being transfigured. You know, I think that's an accidental use of a word there. Uh, and then um, the touch of dignity, which was almost regal, just to speak to what you're saying there, Heidi. And then in the next page, we get her, she actually, um, she draws the the cross. She draws an immense cross upon the baby, it says, with her forefinger. And then this is on 181. And then below that, 
it says, then their sister with much augmented confidence in the efficacy of the sacrament poured forth from the bottom of her heart the thanksgiving that follows, uttering it boldly and triumphantly in the stopped, stopped diapason. How do you say that word? Do we know? I never know how to pronounce anything. <laughs> diapason. That's how I would say it. Diapas. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Someone can let us know. Um, in the stopped diapason, pass on note which her voice acquired when her heart was in her speech and which will never be forgotten by those who knew her the ecstasy of faith almost apotheosized in her or apotheosized her it set upon her face a glowing irradiation and brought a red spot into the middle of each cheek while the miniature candle flame inverted in her eye pupils shone like a diamond the children gazed at her with more and more reverence and no longer had a will for questioning i mean that's like going back to the idea of trans, transfiguration. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on here in terms of what's happening to her. So one of my questions is, you know, you ask Karen in, the, in your, in your questions about what he's criticizing here. And when, again, we need to talk about that and maybe we need to talk about it now, but what is the view of the book on what's happening here? Is there an, I, that's the thing I was trying to thinking about because we know that Hardy was skeptical, was skeptical about these things. Right. Mm-hmm. And we know he is being critical to some degree. And yet also here we have this, this transformation in a sense of, mm-hmm. of this girl who's doing this very difficult thing in this heartbreaking moment. So I, I was a little confused. I don't know if confused is the right word. I was just thinking a lot about the position that the book itself is taking towards what's happening here. How, how do you read that, Karen? You know, that, that's an excellent question. I think what Hardy is is showing pretty clearly, and, and he's always showing a lot here, but is that um, this transfiguring effect is owing to Tess herself. And it is not, she is, she is performing a rite of the church, but she is performing it really illicitly um, mm. in the, you know, from the perspective of the church and, uh, and she, so she doesn't need the church to have this transfiguration and she doesn't need the church to perform this right. And yet underneath all of that, I think Hardy is kind of saying, isn't it sad and tragic that this girl believes so much in this ritual, this symbol Mm. and, you know, he clearly doesn't. So, so she believes and we accept that. And yet the tragedy that I think Hardy is trying to help us to see is that it's, it's tragic that she believes this. But, okay. But it also says that the ecstasy of faith almost apotheosized her. It set upon her face, a glowing irradiation. And, and, and so is he saying, so maybe it's tragic that she believes this, but it also seems to, he seems to be saying here that the faith, her faith is doing something like that. So is, but is, again, is that just because it's her, it's her, like faith is an action, which itself creates transformation. No, that's a great question. I think he's pointing to ecstasy here, like Mm. not, um, not as a real thing, but as a, uh, a cultural or manufactured thing. I mean, we'll see mm. later in the, the book, sort of this, uh, um, the return the, of this theme. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. A return <laughs> of this theme. I don't think he, I think he believes ecstasy is manufactured. I mean, there's a long tradition, I mean, within the Anglican church, uh, against sort of 
ecstasy and what in the 18th century, good old fashioned 18th century word is enthusiasm, like, you know, which Samuel Johnson famously defined as vain revelation and uh, vain belief in divine personal revelation or something like that. So, so we can make ourselves believe things um, that Hardy thinks are, you know, are just superstitions or Mm. outmoded ways. Um, Mm. And yet, and, and, and so in some ways, Tess is the victim of this and she's, she, this she's had this experience but it's not real i think so Heidi, Heidi then if how does this sense this cynical sense that our narrator and hardy brings to the scene impact your pathos the how you read the pathos of the scene how, how does how does it impact your experience with it um that's a good question i think it doesn't take away from it um my I, I think that the scene with the parson that happens next when mm-hmm. she asks him for a christian burial and he denies her that is absolutely intended on hardy's part to carry the weight of his belief about the church and its failure to uh, to be kind and helpful to the people that need the church. Um, this would have been, it's so clear. She's so vulnerable and this would have been an opportunity for just somebody to treat her with kindness for somebody to, um, to comfort her instead of just flinging her back upon herself, which is the thing that we, admire her for, but it's also not what we want for her. And yet what ends up happening is the parson is just another person who denies her solace and consolation. And it's very clear um, in the uh, uh, all important quotes about the wrestling of the, of the vicar with the man inside of the parson. Right. Um, And uh, all, all of his kindness comes not because he's representing the church, which is clearly bad, um, but because he allows himself to respond as a man. And so then on Hardy's part, there's a clear difference, a delineation between being truly human and kind and the, uh, and the failure of the church, right? Um, and so it is, it's very clear that in Hardy's mind, the church can offer nothing to Tess but the man could have, but he gets swallowed by the church, right? So it's, a, it's, it's an indictment, certainly, of the church as a social and a religious institution, um, which then in turn, of course, undercuts the baptism itself, because then we're left knowing that what Hardy believes is the baptism isn't necessary. That's all in Tess's head. She's doing the best that she can based on what she believes, but it wasn't ever necessary. Um, and... Uh, and so it was, of course, then her own inner strength that has any kind of power in this in this scene, not the baptism itself, not an act of grace or a movement of God towards the child's soul. Um, it all just comes because Tess is such a good mom and fighting against all odds in this moment to kind of rise up and give this baptism. Do you, do you agree with that, Paul, Karen? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. And um, I think... A couple things, threads that kind of pick up on that are earlier um, on page 177 in this edition, just, you know, about a page before, uh, a couple pages before the baptism. Um, 
where I think we see Hardy doing all of these things that we've just been talking about, kind of being critical, but also being sympathetic, right? I mean, that's the power. I, I mean, I think Hardy feels sorry for Tess. So the fact that we do is because he does. So he's not criticizing her. He's just saying, you know, he's just showing us um, what her life and world are like because of, of the society. So on page 177, two, there are two set sentences I wanted to look at. Um, the middle one where he says, the baby's offense against society and coming into the world was forgotten by the girl mother. Her soul's desire was to continue that offense by preserving the life of the child. So, you know, he's, he's pointing, Hardy is pointing out that because the baby is illegitimate and illegitimate is a social category um, that you know, he's being ironic here, right? He's saying the baby offended the world by existing and Tessa's does not just her response, but her soul's desire, despite this baby's illegitimacy and, and rejection by society. Um, she, you know, she wants the baby to live. And the way he puts that though, is to continue that offense by preserving the life of the child, which just points out our own hypocrisy. If, if we, you know, if, if we were readers of the day or of today thinking badly of Tess because she, you know, lost her virginity and had this child, um, then we are going to see that child as an offense, but who would read this and want to think of a child that way. And then, um, so, you know, just in, just in those two sentences, Hardy is is deeply indicting his society. He's showing Tess, Tess's purity and her love for her child. Um, and then sort of unrelated to that, but related to the previous part of this conversation and the next the first sentence of the next paragraph um, talks again, about Tessa's passivity, which she wavers back and forth between, you know, this passivity and the strength. Tessa drifted into a frame of mind. Uh, well, it says at the end, you know, her baby had not been baptized. She realizes that problem. Tessa drifted into a frame of mind, which accepted passively the consideration that if she should have to burn for what she had done, burn, she must. And there was an end of it. Um, and then it goes on. But a few lines later, but when the same question arose with regard to the baby, it had a very different color. So she is accepting her fate. Her society is telling her she's going to burn in hell because she had sex outside of marriage and had a baby. And she's accepting that, but she says she will not accept that for her baby. And that I think sets us up for all that pathos and sublimity that we talked about. Right. I agree. Um, David, earlier you asked how it impacted me as a reader. And I think because the three of us are Christians who are reading this book, albeit from various Christian traditions with various, you know, theologies of baptism, um, my personal experience in reading this, uh, was to have even more, I think, even I think even more compassion on Tess um, and a true and a desire for her to be at peace about the soul of her child um, and to relieve that burden from her. And then also uh, a, a very marked, markedly different 
uh, interpretation of the parson, um, the line, the man in the ecclesiastic fought within him and the victory fell to the man. I think as a Christian, I read that and think, oh man, Hardy missed it there. He didn't get that right. What I want is the man in the ecclesiastic to be united so that he will have compassion on Tess, right? It's not a war. It's not a choice between the two, uh, to, but, but a uniting is what I want for the ecclesiastic and the man, uh, because no matter what your theology is, of baptism, it's a misunderstanding of the church's teaching to deny this young woman um, a Christian burial for her child. And so that was, in, in reading it, it doesn't take away the pathos. It doesn't make me angry or shake my fist or how dare you, Hardy, you know, but I do look at that and think, ah, oh, Hardy got it wrong. It isn't that the, the man has to win over the ecclesiastic. It's that the two need to be united uh, so that he can truly love and help this girl. Um, and sadly, and maybe Hardy was right about this, that's a missed opportunity within the church um, in this generation to be able to speak to a girl like this and actually help her and provide some consolation and some spiritual comfort. And if that was truly happening, and I think it was, then Hardy's right to indict it. Maybe not the church itself, but the failure of, um, of an ecclesiastic and a man in this situation, um, to be able to help in any meaningful way. I do think it's, you know, there's, it's so easy to, um, to miss details. And I only just really noticed this, I think now, or remembered it, but, um, Hardy complicates these situations and these characters so much, um, because we do read on page 183, um, right after that about him line, feeling yeah, cornered yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that he that he had actually gone to the house to perform the right but tess's father turned him away but his conflict is that he can't um you know he, he is whether or not what tess did is the same and it's just yeah it, it, it's as as heidi already pointed out he answers it will be just the same um, not because he's representing the church, but, but because he's a decent human being. Um, but he did try to be, um, he did try mm -hmm. to, to perform it. And so that, that, that is one of the things that I love about Hardy that, that we'll encounter again in later chapters I might've already mentioned is that even in his criticism of Christianity and Christian characters, um, he really, he doesn't paint them in like black and white pictures as totally dumb or evil, um, he paints them as complicated. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that's more to show that it's, you know, it's the social norms and values that are the real problem that he's addressing. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that his mind is changed um, by, it's a, it says that yet the dignity of the girl, the strange mm -hmm. tenderness in her voice combined to affect his nobler impulses. So the, these two, the man and the ecclesiastic fought within him and victory fell to the man. That's, you know, the, the man was given a, an edge because of her dignity. And so even there, whatever this transformation was that happened to her earlier was noticeable, not just within the room to her siblings, but to, to this ecclesiastic as well. And it, it's, it's one of the things that convinces him. And then he says, it'll be just the same. Yeah, that's such a loaded statement, isn't it? Just the same. <laughs> just the it's same, repeated. Yeah. It's repeated many times. And in some ways, I think... It is, it, 
it is both the problem that Hardy is addressing and also his own belief about it, right? You can tell Hardy believes it's just the same whether that baby gets baptized or not, right? He he believes it's just the same. So he's telling the literal truth, which is really smart on his part. Uh, but it's Tessa is fearful that it's not the same. It's the church that has taught that it's not the same. Uh, it's And, and so uh, to have that kind of loaded statement, just the same woven throughout this chapter is uh, and used in different ways, both by the narrator and by the characters uh, is, is, I mean, it's just a really brilliant literary touch. This scene ends very weirdly in some ways because not that she goes to bury the baby and she makes a little cross of two lathes and a piece of string and binds it with flowers. But then it, there's that little detail there, putting at the foot also a bunch of the same flowers and a little jar of water to keep them alive. And then it says, what matter was it that on the outside of the jar, the eye of mere observation noted the words... Keelwell's marmalade, the eye of maternal affection, did not see them in its vision of higher things. That was a line that I was contemplating a bit, and I'd love to hear what you think of this. Karen, first of all, it's this very specific reference. Keelwell's marmalade, she uses the jar to put the flowers in. Like On the one hand, she grabs what's at hand and she puts the flowers in it and puts it at the foot of the, the baby's grave. And so just dramatically that like in terms of narrative that makes sense she grabs something she puts the flowers in it but of course he's doing something more there he's got this marmalade and it's she doesn't she's got this vision of higher things and so she doesn't recognize that what is he saying here both in the inclusion of this reference to killwell's marmalade and then also this idea of higher things that keeps her from seeing that it's marmalade what what's going on here and it's the end of this really important scene yeah, I think he's showing how, you know, what what we or what Christians of any time or age, especially his own, see as kind of holy and transcendent can just be reduced and is reduced um, and to Keelwell's marmalade. Um, mm. So it's, you know, the juxtaposition of this very simple, ordinary, trivial item um, with this transcendent, devastating, sublime moment for Tess just deflates it all. Um, but as you, you know, you pointed out the last line is that, you know, she still has her mind set on higher things. Um, and again, as again, it's not so much in this reading, it's really more in phase three. Um, and, and I've asked this at some point in the discussion questions, but um, Tess does sort of develop into a character who's associated with the ideal, not the real. Um, and so that's something to look for in later reading. But right here, this is, we have it. We have, this is like the real world, Keelwell's marmalade. And yet we have Tess uh, with this idealistic sense of the world. Heidi, you, you, one of the, your, the things you like to you write a column for the Close Reads HQ, right? About duty and desire. And it's one of the things you talk about a lot. Is this a section that has had you contemplating those themes? Because I was thinking about like the, is she doing this out of duty? Like, is it pure duty? Or do you think there's a degree? The question of faith comes up in this section, but also she feels like she has to do this for the sake of her, her child's soul. And she says, you know, I may be, I may be damned. So be it. 
but I've got to do what I can for this baby. So to what degree is, is this a, a, a dutiful thing? And is there then a distinction here in this section between like the, the duty and the desire part? Yeah. And how are you thinking about that theme in connection to this, to this part of this book? You're muted. I am muted. Um, <laughs> I said, sure. That's a really good question, David. Yes. Uh, I think that there are two primary human experiences that unite that, that unite duty and desire, which is the, the division between them is the fundamental wound in human nature. And I think we're always trying to heal it in our various insufficient ways. Um, and the two experiences that unite it are one love um, and, and two trauma in, <laughs> um, in a traumatic, and we have both here in a traumatic situation. It is our, both our strongest desire and our strongest duty to free ourselves from this traumatic, whatever the traumatic experience is, whether it's war or rape or um, death, right? Um, there's just a revolt within us that's like, this is not, this is too much. This is not what I was made for. It is my duty and my desire to, to free myself from it, to get under, out from under the weight of it. Um, and, and, and then the other experience that unites them is love. That's why marriage is the sacrament, like such a precious sacrament, right? Because we get, hopefully we get to say, my duty is to my beloved and my desire is for my beloved. And then that is this uniting profoundly transcendent experience, um, whether that's, you know, and obviously marriage is the, the first sacrament of that, but motherhood's also another one and friendship and, uh, fatherhood, all, all of these, like, uh, these relationships that require us to both have a duty to, and a desire for, um, someone else's good, um, is like very healing. Um, and in, we have both in this situation, we have this, the trauma of death and the uniting of love and, and, and it's so searing, right? We feel it on her behalf. Um, and, and to add the sacrament on top of that is really brilliant on Hardy's part. He doesn't believe in the sacrament to him. It's quote, just the same, but I do believe in the sacrament. And so, um, the, and he is, um, he is kind enough, I think, to give those of us who do believe in the sacrament, um, an, a, something to rally around and to root for her in the sacramental moment of baptizing her baby. Um, and of course I agree with the person that it is just the same. Um, but even if you don't believe in the sacrament, there's still enough meaning attached to this idea of baptism that, we see it as this very profound act of love that's potentially healing, not only for the child, but for her. And a sacrament is, I think, the ultimate union of duty and desire that we have on earth in a spiritual sense. Um, so yeah, I kept thinking about it over and over again. And of course, putting myself in her shoes and how I would, I just, I wish it had been more healing. 
I wish she had had somebody to tell her what a hero, what a heroic moment this was for her, and also what a transcendent and spiritual moment. Um, and that God was that God was there with her. I wish somebody had told her that. Um, and I certainly disagree with with Hardy's implication that she's the highest presence there. I think God was there with her. Um, but again, I'm reading it as a Christian, which great literature gives us the opportunity to read ourselves into a story, even if that wasn't necessarily the intent of the author. Karen, do you want to add to that or should I follow up? Follow up. So one of the things that you ask in your questions that you, you mention is Tessa's mother. And there's a great contrast in the scene as Heidi is suggesting here between the actions that Tess takes as a mother and, you know, this uniting of duty and desire in the actions that she takes towards her child and the way that her mother has acted toward her. Her mother has been oriented purely towards selfish desire, right? Uh, both her parents. And to, to an extent that she was harmed, that they put her in harm's way. And then in your question, you say, what fault does Tess assign her mother and what happened to her? That's the fourth question in page 190. So I feel like we need to talk about her mother and to some extent her father too, but certainly her mother. I think we talked about her dad a little bit last time. I, this book, I was thinking about how in some ways it would have been very interesting had the mother been in it more. But I think she's in it almost the right amount because you find yourself so angry at her so much of it. Karen, do you have any sympathy at all towards the mother? I mean, how do you, how do you read the, like on the one hand, there's the question of what does Tess think about her mother? But as a reader, what do you think about her mother? Is it just, are you just like, this is practically a villain here? <laughs> no, no. I, I think that what Hardy is doing is presenting what he sees would be any, you know, infinite, infinite num from a, a woman from an infinite number of like nameless unknown poor village women who have not been educated, who are superstitious and who know only to birth babies and wish for the best for their, for their daughters to marry. I mean, so I don't see, I don't see Tessa's mother is having much agency either. And I don't think Hardy gives it to her, but he, he, I think what it just shows us how this, there is this generational cycle um, to the destruction in this family's life. Um, so I don't think that her mother is presented as, as necessarily villainous. She's just like an, that's the problem. She's actually like an ordinary, regular mm. woman who could be anybody's mother. On 160, she says it would have been something like a story to come back with. Why didn't she think of doing some good for your family instead of thinking only for yourself, which is boy, <laughs> that's, quite a sentence to say there, right? And then in chapter 13, at the bottom of 162, it says, Tess did not hear these commentaries. People are talking about her. If she had heard them, she might soon have set, uh, set her friends right on the matter. But her mother heard on Joan and Joan's simple vanity, having been denied the hope of a dashing marriage, fed itself as well as it could upon the sensation of a dashing flirtation. And I was reminded of uh, Mrs. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice. And I was wondering if you think that that is possibly a purposeful comparison do you think hardy's responding to books like pride and prejudice where you have these mothers pushing for good marriages at all cost leading to for example 
uh, Lydia in that in that book and the the problems that she ends up encountering. Yeah, no, I don't I don't think that it's necessarily a direct allusion or, you know, or a reference to um, anything in Austin. I think this is this is just how this this society was so much this way that this was typical. I mean, Mrs. Derbyfield is just the working class version of Mrs. Bennett. I mean, that's exactly okay. right. Yeah. She has the same, but this is because this was the situation for all women and all economic classes is that they had to marry well for the whatever well meant, um, but for the sake of their families, that was the expectation. Um, it would just, you know, it was a little bit more pleasant for the Bennett's, but not entirely. Um, and mm. Yeah, I, I think the echoes of of Mrs. Bennett are are there. And I think that's because because this was just what it was for women for, you know, centuries in British life. Heidi, if we're doing this Pride and Prejudice comparison, I was kind of as a mental exercise while I was reading, kind of thinking about the differences between Tess and Elizabeth Bennett. Is this a situation where for Elizabeth, it's, you know, like uh, there, but for the grace of God, go I, you know. Um, situation where with a different, if, if Darcy were a little bit different or Elizabeth had a little bit different, a little bit less uh, Mm -hmm. wisdom, she's a little older, I think, isn't she? But um, a little bit less uh, pride, perhaps even (laughs) Um, she might have encountered a similar situation. I mean, or or do you go ahead? Go ahead. Well, I mean, we see that in Lydia to your point. Yeah. Yes, she's very easily seduced and fallen. Uh, and certainly within Victorian times, the idea was that girls should know as little as possible. I, we, we need to protect them from, from knowledge. And then, and then it's the, the, her male relative's job to keep her from, you know, the wicked deceiver or whatever. And it's the mother's job to sit and with her, tender virgin daughter and all dressed in a white nightgown and teach her all about purity and um, without letting her know anything. Right. So, I mean, I've read, I'm sure Karen has too. I mean, just dozens of, um, you know, novels and tales about, about that kind of thing. Um, And what, what happens from that. And I've even, I've read some firsthand accounts of wedding nights from women raised under this kind of culture and not knowing what's coming at all. It's really sad. Um, I think what I, I, what I like about Hardy, I mean, many, many things I like about Hardy, but psychologically uh, he's, he's very consistent. Um, and he tells like a very true story from a psychological point of view um, in studying trauma, um, there's two sources of long-term damage that comes from trauma. Uh, one is the, the, the trauma from the primary act itself. In this case, um, it would be rape. Um, the act of violence that's done against the person. That's the first wave of trauma, Um, but often more damaging than that. In fact, research shows that that secondary trauma can be far more damaging than primary trauma. By secondary trauma, I mean the act of contempt or dismissal that comes from the community of the traumatized person toward the primary act of 
of trauma. So for example, a mother dismissing a claim of a child that she's been traumatized. And that's exactly what happens here. And we have from Hardy uh, a, a, an understanding of why, as Karen, as you've pointed out, right? This nobody understood um, at this time what trauma would do to a person, uh, to a young girl. Um, and that, but, but when Tess confides in her mother and her mother shames her, and treats her claim with contempt and dismissal, uh, the implication is that that is like deeply re-traumatizing to the person. And I think that we see that in the book. We have Tess, Tess very withdrawn, depressed. She doesn't go out, which part of that is going to be because of the societal pressure, right? Because of her loss of reputation uh, within the community. And some of it is because she's just been shamed by the person who A, should have protected her and B, should have helped her and comforted her and restored her. Um, and so in this section, again, we have so many different ways of Tess losing and there's so many different deaths in this section. And I think that's one of them um, is um, by the end, it says she's no longer a simple girl, but a complex woman. And one of those things is going to be because there is now a chasm between her and her mother that's almost in, uncrossable. And we'll see the results of that. That could have been... So much of this could have, this novel could have been written today, right? Yes, yes. Uh, about a similar story. I mean, it's now, I guess it's written, told in the pages of The Atlantic or The New Yorker this or something. This is why literature is so enduring, right? It's like when we read Dostoevsky and we think, oh, and I really know what it would be like to be a murderer. <laughs> this, is, I, um, this could have been me, right? Like you read this, this story and it's so so consistent with what we now know through much science and research, um, which is probably a very disordered way to look at trauma anyway, but, um, and, but anyway, that, that he's, he, he takes what we know now and you can see it in this book, even though he didn't have access to that, but because he can just feel it, right. He could feel what it's like to be human and how we would respond to something like that. A girl mm -hmm. confiding in her mom and have her mom call her selfish. And again, to Karen's point, what else could Joan do? I don't, this, it, Hardy isn't indicting Joan and I'm not necessarily, but I am also saying like that is just as traumatizing as the act itself to be dismissed and to be treated with contempt um, when you just need help. And over and over again, that happens in this section. One of the things that I think helps us as readers um, and or at least helps kind of ground the narrative is that we don't have any real sympathy for Alec, you know, so far, we have we don't come away from it being like, well, he seems like he could be a nice guy, like you know, like are you sure it went that you know? Whereas you could see the mother being like, are you the way she responds is she's trying to preserve some sense of this guy maybe maybe it didn't happen the way you thought it did. Maybe he's better than you thought. Maybe she's trying to preserve the possibility in her own mind that the choices she made were not choices that harmed her daughter. But for us as readers, we don't doubt his intentions i mean we you know what i mean we don't doubt but that they were evil <laughs> um and so that helps uh orient us in that relationship which i think allows us to to experience what's about to happen even more profoundly 
because we know that she is alone, you know? And even in that night when she's baptizing the baby, there are no adults around. Like her parents are both not around. She's with her little children, her little siblings and us as the reader, right? We are like her companion in this moment. And so that chasm that has been created between mother and daughter, we are firmly at that point on her side because we know what has actually happened to her. We don't have any doubts about what she has endured. But then at the end of this chapter, this takes us, leads us, we'll end the episode here. It leads us into phase the third. So at the end of 15, how do you mention this? It says on 187, almost at a leap, Tess thus changed from simple girl to complex woman. Symbols of reflectiveness passed into her face and a note of tragedy at times into her voice. Her eyes grew larger and more eloquent. She became what would have been called a fine creature. Her aspect was fair and arresting, her soul that of a woman whom the turbulent experiences of the last year or two had quite failed to demoralize. But for the world's opinion, those experiences would have been simply a liberal education. Goes on for a little bit more, and then at the end of the next paragraph, it says, Yet even now Tess felt the pulse of hopeful life still warm within her. She might be happy in some nook which had no memories. To escape the past and all that had appertained thereto was to annihilate it. And to do that, she would have to get away. So she leaves, she goes away to become, I think, what was it? It was Dairy Maid, right? Is that the phrase that they, they use um, on some property that wasn't too far away from her ancestor's property? Milkmaid. Whoops. Milkmaid. Oh, milkmaid. Okay. She wondered if any ancestor, uh, if any strange good might come of her being in her ancestral land. And so even there, we get this, the questions of like fate and things that we talked about previously. So what, as we get into this next section, Karen, and she has been changed, she has been transformed, she has grown up some, and yet even as she has endured this, this trauma, as Heidi was referring to it, it says that she, she has been transformed into a quote, a fine creature. You know, um, there's a, I assume that he's kind of saying there's a wisdom about her uh, that this experience has, has wrought. And there is still this uh, hopeful life still warm within her. What should we be looking out for, given that we have, she has just endured all this trauma, and yet here she is uh, as a, again, as the book says, a fine creature. <laughs> it's really interesting to me that he talks about her that way, that there's been this like physical transformation, uh, even as she has endured this great physical and psychological trauma. So he's preparing us, it seems, for the rest of the book. So given that he seems to be preparing us for the rest of the book, what should we look for in this next phase three, where the story, this next phase is going to be longer. We're like entering a new act of this book, it seems like. How should we begin to think about her and read her? Um, what would your advice be as we're reading the next the next bit of the book? Again, I rambled there for a second just to give you a chance to think. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I mean, I think some things we've already brought up. I mean, how, how much is Tess... Um, aligned by Hardy with kind of the natural world, but also with idealism. Um, is she an ideal figure rather than a, a real one? And also part of part of the role that fate plays in um, this story is that Tess was fated to be born beautiful to become a fine creature right so she so she was attractive to alec um she's going off now even more attractive in a in a physical and personal sense um and so that's going to matter in the next section okay so let me ask you a question then 
in this section here at the end of chapter 15, how much of it, of that fineness <laughs> is he saying was acquired by enduring the things that she has endured and how much of it was faded? And is there, or, or is it, is that the question? Um, I mean, I think it's both. So she, so she, you know, the, the passage when it talks about symbols of reflectiveness, there's a maturity and wisdom that comes, as you said, but she's also like, she's maturing into a woman. I mean, she has been a young girl up until now. So she, so her soul is maturing. Um, she's gained experiences. So she just is, you know, she has become, she's becoming a, a woman rather than a girl. Um, and hmm. yeah, I mean, yeah. in every way. Heidi, before we go, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I I think looking forward into these next sections, we are looking to see what this transformation that she's just been through, this transformation from simple girl to complex woman, what it will lead to, right? Uh, because as a simple girl, um, it's just funny, like beautiful women, this is just true across the board. And I think we definitely see it here. Beautiful women are both like very, very powerful and very, very vulnerable, like very, and, um, and especially in a moralistic society. And, uh, but I think just inherently. And, and so I think we're looking for the more evidence of the intersection of her power and her vulnerability uh, and um, what is going to come from this transformation that we just had, because in a sense, she hasn't just baptized her baby. She's gone through a baptismal experience that has turned her from something into something else, from simple girl to complex woman. So how are we going to see the complexity play out since we've seen the simplicity play out? And I think that's the next step for Tess. We could have had a 600 page novel just on as much story as we've gotten so far. <laughs> For sure. Um, and we get, you know, now we're going to, we still have 60% of this book left. So that, that's, uh, this has been great. I'm really enjoying discussing this and reading this. And like I said, I hadn't read it before. So pretty good writer, Thomas Hardy, turns out. Good choice. Uh, if you had to choose what well, I can see why you chose it as one of six novels Karen, to, to that, do these editions on. That's real affirmation. I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you. <laughs> and it's one that I think probably is probably needs to be read more. You know, some of the books you do that you did, like um, Sense and Sensibility probably gets read. Is that Jane the most Eyre. popular? Yeah, Jane Eyre. I would yeah. say Jane Eyre, yeah. yeah. And then Frankenstein gets read probably yeah. quite a bit. But this is this this and what Heart of Darkness, probably the, the one, the two that get read least, would you say, of the six? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, maybe we'll have to do uh, Heart of Darkness on the future, in the future on the show with you. Although it probably take a lot fewer weeks. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, Karen, what, are you, what do you have going on? Anything you want to, you want to, promote uh you know obviously people go buy these editions uh of the books at your at your local bookstore you can yeah yeah go go buy these editions um and if you haven't listened to the jane and jesus podcast please do yeah it's a great one i highly recommend it heidi anything that you want to anything you're up to you want to pitch before we go we have this retreat coming up. This close That's true. We're getting retreat. ready for our close retreat retreat on on uh, Brideshead Revisited and his friends. Mm, and well, my Brideshead Revisited is not a him. Favorite novel. <laughs> I cannot wait. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we've got that, and then of course um, we're about to begin in a couple of weeks. Or the exact date TBD, but uh, we're going to be doing East of Eden 
as our book on the bonus podcast. If you want to sign up to, to get access to those, you can go to closereads.substack.com. And I, we're really excited about that. Um, Karen, that's a book you like, right? You read that recently. I read it for the first time uh, during the pandemic, I think. And I was just so wowed. I was amazed. It was so good. I feel like it's a book that's almost underrated now mm-hmm. because it's, Steinbeck is a big name and it's a long book mm-hmm. that gets talked about. But I do feel like when you go back to it and you really read it closely, turns out the man was kind of a genius. Yeah. And he also could string some amazing sentences together. So <laughs> uh, like Thomas Hardy. So, well, Karen, Heidi, thank you so much for, for coming on. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Thanks for all your, for your subscriptions to Close Reads HQ and also for, you know, just helping spread the word about Close Reads. Um, it's a great community to be a part of and we're grateful to, to be able to uh, be a part of these conversations with you. So for Heidi White, for Karen Swallow Pryor, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Thank you.